chapter 13, a few verses this evening to open our study of God's Word relative to authority. Romans 13. Romans 13, the Word of God declares in the first verse, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. And that's as far as we'll read for the time being. But the powers that be are ordained of God to resist those powers and to resist the ordinance of God and their God's ministers in general for our good. And those that resist the ordinance of God shall receive to themselves damnation. God has set up standards, spheres, domains of authority in our universe. I covered a great portion of that last Sunday evening. I want to briefly review it and we'll move forward. When the Bible uses the word power and powers like it does here, it's referring to positions and the men in those positions of authority. It's just another word that we don't tend to use as much the same way. But the powers that be are the offices of authority and the men in those offices. I'll have occasion to return to Romans 13, but let me remind you uh, directly of whom it is speaking. It is speaking directly of pagan Caesars that were the head of the Roman Empire. God denies atheistic sodomites that had filled an office that God had created. God had created them and providentially preserved them and placed them in that office and stirred up their minds to be the type of rulers they were, and I'll prove all of that this evening. So that when the apostles said, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, there was a definite one that ruled over Israel, that ruled over the Romans in Rome. You would not have to doubt about who we're speaking of here, do you? And the Lord Paul goes on to say, there is no power but of God. The powers that be, present tense, are ordained of God. Those atheistic Caesars were ordained by God for the then government of the world. The known world, the only world that God really had any consideration for. And that was the world that was under the domain of the Roman Empire. Now that's a strong statement. You know, there are Christians that believe we ought not to submit to our civil government because our civil government endorses things like abortion and the gay rights movement, and so forth, and therefore we ought not to pay tribute to them, nor should we support them. But listen, our government's still a far cry better than the Roman government that the Romans and the Jews lived under, as far as there being freedom of religion allowed, and even men in high places worshiping the same God we do, albeit maybe an error. My subject is the ordinance of authority. God's ordained authority. Now the first thing I wanted to point out is that God has ordained the offices. He's picked five offices. 
the entire world of five billion human beings can be governed politically, economically, religiously, family-wise, sexually, maritally, with five spheres of authority. Husbands over wives, fathers over children, primarily. You can stick mothers in there, but then the husband's the head of the wife anyway. We've got husbands, we've got fathers, we've got masters, pastors, and kings, or others in their offices, or similar offices. And through those five domains of authority, the world's governed, so that it runs rather smoothly. And it's the nations that exalt those five spheres of authority that run the best, that have the most progress, that have the greatest peace, the most security, and God's blessing upon them. It's nations that deny the proper exercise of those five authority spheres that end up in what we call third world nations because they're in the third world. They're out in left field because they don't want to practice these five spheres of authority. But what I want to point out very heavily last Sunday evening is a concept like marriage, a concept like the family and the government of children is not by the wisdom of man. Men did not come up with it. You can take all the courses you want in political science and all you'll do is be the worst for it at the end of it if you don't submit to God's Word. Because God's Word, God's Word establishes the proper forms of government. And for marriage, it's the husband over the wife. For children, it's the parents over the children, the husband, the father, over the mother. In places of employment, it's not management by committee. Management by committee does not work regardless of how many business courses taught in the Harvard Graduate School of Business might say so. They don't know any better. The Bible declares it doesn't work. There are masters and there are servants. And Solomon said, I've seen an evil thing. I've seen servants riding on horses. And they ought not to ride, they ought to walk. And kings ought to be in authority and they do not need to answer to the people. Because God has always ordained an autocratic form of government where he puts power into individuals. In a marriage, it's not a partnership. It's an autocratic form of government in the man, the husband. In a family, it's in the father. In a business, it's in the master. In a church, it's in the pastor. It's not congregational rule. I don't care if Roberts and Hiscox and everybody else's rules of order say the Baptist churches ought to be run by congregational rule. There isn't one verse in the Bible that even smells like it if you scratch it. It's pastoral rule. And a nation's not to be run by the people. Now, we have a nation that God has blessed because of the free preaching of the gospel. Amen. Our nation is great because the gospel's been preached here, not because we have a wise form of government. Our form of government is not very wise. It smacks of hell. All you have to do is read our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution, where we, the people, in order to establish a more perfect government, have decided to abolish the government that we're now under in order to set one up that we like that will give us what we want. That is what our founding fathers wrote. You can go home and read it for yourselves. If my kids came and said that to me, it'd be a long time before they could say anything. Because that is the height of rebellion. Now, you say, well, does that mean you'd be a royalist? I don't know. Very likely. Very likely. 
and say, but uh, wasn't England taxing our nation or the colonies without representation? So what? You say, would you be a royalist? Very possibly. But we don't live there. We're too far removed of it to know all, too far removed from it to know all the circumstances. I know one thing, if they tried to step in and dictate how I worship God, it'd be one issue. But if they wanted to tax me, given that these colonies were supported and defended in some ways by the English government, we might be royalists. We don't know that question. All I ask you to do, if you like to think about political subjects and authority and government, go read what our founding fathers wrote. I do not worship our founding fathers. Other than the position of authority they have, they don't mean anything to me. God's word means everything to me. I don't care if it was Israel under Moses or Israel under a king. God established who their king would be. God chose, God picked the office. God chose the man, Moses, David, whoever it might be. And God would stir up their hearts, either in righteousness or in wickedness, either to punish the nation or to bless the nation. God could move David to number Israel just so that he could kill 70,000 Israelites because the nation needed to be judged. Right. Whether it's the office or the man or the spirit of the man in the office, they're of God. Amen. The powers that be are ordained of God. The office of the highest angelic being is the one I had to apologize for already this evening. And I don't say that with a bitter spirit about doing it. I've grieved all afternoon waiting to get here. It's not every day that I have to apologize to the devil. But for his office, I'll honor him. For the being in the office, it's ordained of God that that high angelic being would rebel against the Most High and be the enemy of Jesus Christ. And for the fact that his spirit is stirred up and what he's allowed to do is by the ordination of God. Remember, everything he did against Job was by the ordination of God, so much so was that true that it is said that God was moved against Job. Right. Now that's about as low and as corrupt as we can get, can we, when we pick the office of devil and look at the man in the office of devil and the way his spirit stirred up, it's about as low as we can get from what we envision in our minds of a perfectly righteous position of power and a perfectly righteous man in it, and yet it's ordained of God. Right. And Michael the Archangel himself, who was far greater in power and might than I am, when he was arguing with the devil about the body of Moses in Jude verse 9, would not bring against him a railing accusation. I brought a railing accusation this morning that I have repented of. He simply said, the Lord rebuked thee. That's right. And I preached enough on that this morning also, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, would take care of that being. The Lord Jesus Amen. Christ will do it. Because God is the highest authority. See, Michael the Archangel recognizes priorities and authority. God doesn't because he's the highest. He can rebuke and bring a railing accusation on anyone he wishes. That's right. Because he's Almighty God. I, last Sunday evening, you know, there was uh, there was some laughter because I was describing cavemen. You know, and amoebas, and Cro-Magnon men, and Piltdown men, and all those other imaginations, and hallucinations of men. That is not where the concepts of marriage, family, society, business, religious, came from. God has ordained them. 
and we need to flush our minds from the filth that has infected them to where we don't want to recognize that God has picked certain offices by himself, designed the wisdom of them, and ordained them, which means to appoint them with authority and the word to keep them. Right. We have got to believe that they're ordained of God. None of these concepts are up for debate because they didn't evolve. Men didn't sit down and think what would be a good form of government to have. God has already ordained the best form of government. You can't improve on it. There is no improvement over an autocratic form of government. Amen. God doesn't believe in checks and balances. You can hear all the speeches you want about the glory of the checks and balances of the American system. God never ordained checks and balances right. that way. You know why? Because God is providentially in control of this world. There Amen. isn't even a check and balance on the devil himself. You're going to put a check and balance on the devil? Who wants to try it? <laughs> Who wants to check the devil? Who wants to balance his power? Do you know who's the great check and balance in this universe? And who faithfully intercedes on the behalf of all faithful, God-fearing people? God himself. God will never let a child. God will never let a wife. God will never let a church. God will never let an employee or a servant. God will never let a nation be ruined if that nation has turned their face toward God or individuals within that nation. He'll deliver them, even from the pit of Sodom or any other situation. God will deliver. You say, Joseph certainly was abused by Potiphar, wasn't he? But my God was on his side. He had a great check and balance. Joseph didn't plan some escape from that prison. In fact, he took charge of the prison while he was there. He said, while I'm here, I might as well get some good resume material. Right. He did. He could have tried to escape. Well, I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to go kill Potiphar. Because that wasn't fair, the way he treated me. I'm here unjustly. God saw Joseph. God sees everyone in a position like that. God is the check and balance. I cannot emphasize that enough. Men want to think we're the check and balance on authority. Wives want to think they're responsible to check their husbands. God didn't call them to check their husbands. God is a check on husbands. Right. And so forth. We'll have more to say about that when we get to the objections. It's the ordinance of God, brother. These five offices God has set up, we don't debate them, we don't discuss them, we don't say, well, couldn't a church run better if it was run by the congregation or had a deacon board to help assist the pastor? Could a church run better? Let's ask the theoretical question. Can a church be run better? Theoretically. No way. No way. God has ordained the wise approach to managing every aspect of our society. That's like saying can a family run better by a partnership between the husband and the wife rather than the husband ruling over the wife. Now the Bible says one and denies the other. Which one are we going to take? God has ordained the way these authority relationships are to work. We don't discuss them. We don't debate them. We don't bark against them. We don't oppose them. We don't try to sneak around them. We submit to them. God first ordained the offices. He said, I want one male sex and one female sex, and the man will rule over the woman. God did that. They're going to bring helpless little infants into the world, and I want the parents to rule over the children. 
They're going to get together for economic pursuits, and I want masters that I'm qualified in the position of master to rule over servants. When they get together religiously, I want a priest or a judge or a pastor to rule over how they worship God collectively in a public way so that it pleases me. And I'll pick men for that office. I've, or, I've ordained the office. And for political purposes, for the common defense of a nation, of a, of a community, we'll pick kings or other judges and or queens. And they are God's ordinance. We are not to debate them or question them. That's the way God has set up proper government. You can listen to all the rantings and ravings about the glory, the way our nation was set up, and all of its checks and balances. We get to sit and read about the proof of that system every day in the newspaper. That's right. And compared to the way God would have set it up, it's very, 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 very inefficient. Exactly. Somebody will say, but yes, but look at all the blessings our nation has had because of it. Our nation isn't great because of our form of government. Our nation is great because the word of God has been preached here faithfully Amen. and freely Amen. from pulpits. It is not our form of government. God ordained the office, five of them, and the ones that are delegated and delegated authority from them. Last Sunday evening, I spent a lot of time on how God providentially prepares men for that office. Now, I've already really jumped ahead of myself and gone to the extreme, the devil. Did he create the office for the devil? Did he create the devil? Does he control the devil's ambitions and spirit? That really answers everything I'm going to say that's going to take me to to say a quarter of what I'd like to say. And I won't say it all this evening. I'll, I'll try to show you some mercy because of this morning. But do you see the extreme? The office? The being? And the spirit and the degree of exercise in the spirit of that being are all under the control of God. So when we say the powers that be are ordained of God, we not only mean the office, we mean the man in the office, and we mean the ambitions and or ignorance and or wisdom of the man at that point in time. And you know what bears that out real quickly? When you came into this world, was there an office over you? When you came into this world, was there an office over you? Parents, were the man and the woman in that office already selected for you? Oh, yes. Was their particular level of wisdom or ignorance at that point in time already determined by God? How many times have you barked against that? You say, well, I have. Well, you better be careful because Isaiah 45 and verse 10 says, Woe unto him that would ever say to his parents, What have you brought forth? That's right. Think about that. You say, What's the check and balance on parents? Aren't little children taken advantage of every day in this world by their parents? Yes. Who's in control of it? You say, well, I wish I was, because I deliver a whole lot of children. You wish you were? I like to leave it in God's hands. Amen. God will deliver those children, because God hears the cry of the innocent and the fatherless. God hears the cry of widows. God hears the cry of those helpless ones that have no power on their side. And there is one in heaven that will deliver them. And that is the great check and balance. Amen. That is the great check and balance in the day we forget that check and balance and enter and start down the road of humanitarian efforts to save the world, we are taking a burden on our shoulders that there's only one man in this universe great enough to carry, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Amen. We cannot do that, and I want to tell you something, you couldn't do it better anyway. That's right. He's got an infinite purpose in everything that happens, including babies that don't get any food, and they get beat up, and they get drowned in toilets. That's right. 
he's also got a purpose in the king being around and saying, if you drown your baby in a toilet, I'll drown you in a public one. That's the cure for that. If all five spheres of authority worked properly, there were situations like that would be taken care of. You say, well, why do we live in a nation where things like that can happen? You want to know why? Because we deserve what we have right now. That's, in our right. That's why. I can't review what we covered last, e last Sunday evening about God's providential care, but I hope you'll remember it. God providentially prepares men to be husbands and fathers, doesn't he? Doesn't he make a chemical change about 14 years of age? where they're qualified to rule over a woman and rule over children if they want to? Does God prepare men for ruling by giving them superior wisdom in certain cases, like Solomon? Would you say God gave him some wisdom to rule? Yeah. He said, I don't know how to rule, I'm a child. God said, I'll take care of it for you. You want to be a good ruler, I'll give you all the wisdom you need. God prepares men for ruling by giving them physical <coughs> superiority. He's done that. You want to talk about Samson? Just remember Samson. Was there a physical gift to be a better ruler? Indeed, God prepared him for it. God prepares men for ruling by giving them a new heart, like Saul. God said, I'll, I'll make you a new man. He needed to be a new man. He was a timid man, even though he was eight foot tall. God prepares men for ruling by subjecting their people under them, as David. God prepares men for ruling by giving them gifts, like Bezalel and others. God prepares men for ruling by confirming their rule. Like when God washed Egyptians up on the seashore to confirm the rule of Moses. God prepares men for ruling by superior circumstances. Like Daniel being selected by the master of the eunuchs of the Babylonian Empire to be placed at the forefront of the Jewish captives. And I gave you a couple of examples last Sunday evening. I know a number of men have rejoiced with me this past week about the man that God has raised up for our nation, a military hero, for us to see a real leader for a change. Right. We haven't had very many. This nation is deprived of real leaders. God has said that he would judge a nation who turns their back on him by taking away their mighty men. And we've had our mighty men taken away. Now, a couple of you served in the Vietnam Theater, and you've heard the name Westmoreland before, but if I was to ask the rest of the congregation, tell me what you know about Westmoreland, they'd draw a complete blank. They would draw a complete blank. But God's raised up a hero for at least this time, and that's Norman Schwarzkopf. <coughs> and if you watch him, if you listen to him, you read about him, he's a mighty man of valor. Let's use the Bible term. He is a mighty man of valor. He's got courage. Three silver stars, and you've got to read about how he got those. He has a 170 IQ, and Brethren Genius starts at 150. He's six foot three, 240, and he knows how to use all that. Right. He's a glory to behold as a mighty man of valor. I've heard a number of things. Some of you have seen the Barbara Walters special, where she interviewed him and said, I, I heard that when you returned from Vietnam, that protester spit on you. And he said, wait a minute, I want to make one thing very clear. No protesters ever spit on me. We had some troops return from Vietnam and protesters spit on them. But I want you to know, no protesters ever spit on me. And all you can see is a little paste of a protester if you have got a hold of one.
but he could say that. Then Barbara Walters could bring up and ask about his father, who was a one-star general, and tears can come to his eyes. Right. He's a man of compassion. He's a man of courage. He's a man of extreme, acute skill. He used our press. We needed a man that could use our press. He fed them what they wanted. You know, I'm sure poor Saddam Hussein was uh, listening to CNN, ABC, CBS, and NBC, because that's the only way he could know what was going on. And General Schwarzkopf used our press to deceive the world as to what he was doing. That's brilliant. That's yeah. brilliant. Have you ever seen him handle the press? He puts them in their place, doesn't he? He's a mighty man of valor. Why did God raise him up? Do you know why I think God raised him up? I, I believe God raised him up, and this is going to sound so haughty, but I'm going to say it for you, because of the Greenville Church that needs a hero in modern times to recognize a mighty man of valor, because right. we haven't seen one in so long, we've hardly, we can hardly remember the concept. Right. I've heard that when they showed his meager little room in the, uh, the headquarters there in Saudi Arabia, that there were three books beside his bed. Two of them dealt with the customs of the Muslim nations, and the other was a khaki version of the Holy Bible. And I thank God for showing that laying right here inside his bed. I've heard so many good things. Listen, when God raises up a man like that, we ought to glory in it because God ordained him. Amen. I believe when that boy was formed in the womb of his mother, God Almighty had his eye on him and said he's going to be a, a hero for the American people that are willing to reverence authority. And it's amazing right now. Every major corporation in this country, he's already been offered jobs exceeding seven figures. Now, you know how much seven, you know what seven figures means? It means your minimum amount is a million dollars a year. Lee Iacocca spoke to his board just this past week, the board of directors of Chrysler Corporation, and said, it's time for me to step down. I'm tired. There's one man you need. <laughs> Can you? Listen, you people who haven't lived near the UAW, <laughs> Some of you have. Charlie, David, could they use Norman Schwarzkopf and Chrysler Corporation? The UAW, United Auto Workers, it'd be a glorious day for about six days. <laughs> we ought to glory in it. We ought to glory in it. I believe God's raised him up. I look at things, I don't believe there are coincidences. I believe he's raised up for us to look at him and see there's a mighty man of power. So far, he's executed his office very, very well. You know, they're speaking of him as President Schwarzkopf already. He's already been uh, given, he's already been asked to uh, allow a book to be written about him, and that's seven figures also. The man is set. President Bush has said, what else can I give him? There's only one office. But the Lord's been doing this more. Colin Powell has done an excellent job. We've been able to watch that. A chain. God has granted us to be able to see something we haven't seen in a long time. That's right. But let's move on. God ordains the office. God providentially prepares the men. And then God gets the men to the office. Do you believe that? Let me show you a few verses that speak in general. 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel 2. If you believe that God can ordain the office, and you believe God can providentially prepare the man, 
Do you have enough confidence in God that he can get the man to the office? I hope so. I hope so. First Samuel 2. You women, you, ever, you want to learn how to pray? Here's how to pray. This woman's prayer will shake you to your bones. Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but anyway, verses 7 and 8. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he hath set the world upon them. God is able to take someone out of the dunghill and out of the dust of the earth and set him among princes. God can ordain the office, providentially preserve, prepare the man, and get him to the office. These are verses that speak in general without a specific man necessarily being under consideration. I have a whole list of them. I'll give you a few. That was 1 Samuel 2. Look at 1 Chronicles. 29. 1 Chronicles 29. You know, there's some natural brute beasts you know, who understand nothing that look at a man like Schwarzkopf and say, well, I can sit in his job and do that. That man has had nightmares for six months, according to his own testimony, of going down in history as the butcher of Baghdad because 100,000 American boys could have been killed by chemical attack if he did not properly prosecute that war. Now, do you want to talk about a burden? See, there are brute beasts that walk around on two legs with 90 IQs and 110 IQs and 130 IQs that think they can do that job. They do not know the pressure of that responsibility of having all those young men in their prime facing imminent death. They wouldn't even know how to handle that job. Right. The Apostle Paul, after he describes all that he went through, stonings, beatings, whippings, shipwrecks, and so forth, he said, and on top of all that, like none of that really counted, he said, the care of all the churches, because the burden of that is something that other people don't even recognize, recognize and yet they love to sit in judgment on the one in authority. Right. <clears throat> Can you imagine the responsibility for wanting to preserve lives. And if you read anything about that man, every single casualty is important to him. Thank God he was so merciful to us. 100,000 100, to 124. God is merciful. First Chronicles 29, verse 12. We read this. Both riches, this is David blessing the Lord, both riches and honor come of thee. And thou reignest over all, and in thy hand is power and might. And in thine hand is it to make great. It is to make great and to give strength unto all. God has the ability in his hand to make men great and to place them in positions of power and influence. Look at Job 34. Let's keep moving here. Job 34. Job 34 and verse 24. Speak Elihu, speaking of God, he shall break in pieces mighty men without number and set others in their stead. He shall break mighty men in pieces without number and set others in their stead. God can take a man in authority and take him out and put another one in. God arranges authority for us. It is not our job to arrange the authority that we're under. God does it for us. God does it for us. Look at Psalm 75. Psalm 75. 
and verse 5. Lift not up your horn on high, speak not with a stiff neck. For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He putteth down one, and setteth up another. The president we have, the congress we have, the Supreme Court justices we have, God has set them up. You say, I don't like the way they vote. We don't deserve any better vote. Right. That's the vote God wants us to have right now, and we're going to submit to it. Because God has set them up. Promotion doesn't come from anywhere but from God himself. Look at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. We could read verses. These are general verses without a particular man being considered. Daniel chapter 2. This is a principle of the Bible from beginning to end. This is a principle that has been lost. A great deal of it that we need to remind ourselves of and our children of and our congregation of and hold fast to it. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel speaking and blessing God, he says in verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changeth the times and the seasons, he removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He puts down kings, he sets up kings, he changes the times. This is our God. God is in control of who's in authority. This isn't saying that God uses the office of king for a while and then decides a democratic form of government's good for a while. This is saying the men in the office are set up by God. Now let's deal with some specifics. Those were in general. Look at Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. Have you ever read the book of Judges? What is it? It's a roller coaster ride, isn't it? Right. It is a roller coaster ride of every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. And so the Lord brings them into bondage to the Philistines for 40 years. And then he raises up a judge to deliver them. When he, when he dies, the people go whoring after other gods, and he brings them under the bondage of another nation again. And then he raises up another judge to deliver them. Now look at Judges 2.16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. Judges like Jephthah, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, and so forth. These were hand-picked men by Almighty God even before they were conceived. Remember Manoah's wife, Samson? God sent an angel to tell the woman how to, what to eat and how to act and how to treat her son even before he was born. Because God raised up judges. God will always raise up judges for his people. When, it, when they're seeking after God, then he'll raise up good judges. When they're not seeking after God, he'll raise up judges to destroy their nation. But God raises up the judges. Men don't decide who the judge should be. God will do that. That's Judges chapter 2. 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, Samuel says unto Saul, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. 1 Samuel 15, 28, God drew the line at the end of Saul's reign and said, It's all over. I've picked a man that's better than you, and his name is David. God sets up kings, puts down kings, and sets up kings to replace them. 16 and verse 1, the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. 
I will send thee to Jesse to Bethlehem, for I have provided me a king among his sons. Notice the terminology. I've got a king. Quit mourning about Saul. I've got my better man. He's just a boy now, but go anoint him anyway. I have provided. I have provided. Not you're going to vote. You know, we're going to have a write-in ballot. I have provided a king. And God had provided David, specifically. Look at Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. What are the four great empires in the history of this world? The first one, Babylon. Second, Medo-Persian. Third, Greek. Fourth, Roman. I mean, those are the great empires of the world, in God's opinion. The rest were just make-believe. Relatively speaking, those four. Those four had to deal with his people. Those four had to deal with the Lord Jesus Christ. Those four, with the expanse and spread of their power, ruled the known world that God deals with in the Holy Scripture. And when I read verses like this, this passages like this excite me about authority for the influence that God has even in pagan governments. I mean, these are governments that didn't necessarily gather together on the first day of the week like this and read their Bibles. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, verse 1, the word of the Lord with the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, and I'm getting ahead of myself, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, notice that, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. How did Cyrus become king? The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Right. And he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. This is a pagan king of a pagan empire. The Lord's given me the kingdoms of the earth. God sets up king. God hasn't just ordained the office. God didn't just providentially prepare Cyrus for the job. God got him in the job. God got him into the office, so he was indeed the king of Persia. Look at Jeremiah 27. Jeremiah 27. I have multiplied upon multiplied witnesses of this. This, these particular points, and this will be the last one on this point. Jeremiah 27, a, a specific man that God got to the office. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts in verse 4. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. I have made the earth, the man, the beast that are upon the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and have given it unto whom it seemed meet unto me. Now is that enough? I shouldn't need to read anymore. Listen, I've made everything this world has in it, and I give it to whomsoever I think I ought to. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him. And all nations shall serve him, and his son, and his son's son, until the very time of his land come, and then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. Now, how does that sound for God's providence in the affairs of men? When I get over to Romans 13 and it says the powers that be are ordained of God, I can go back to 60 AD and find out what Caesar was in power and God wanted him there. And God got him there, and it wasn't just the office. Right. 
God gets the man to the office. So we've got several steps here. God ordains the office. God then prepares the man. God then gets the man into the office. And look, notice that passage we just read, and I can multiply that one, because Nebuchadnezzar was one of God's favorites. Do you know why? Because Nebuchadnezzar was one of the closest men this world has ever had that looked like God. He was the head of gold of all the kingdoms of this earth. My servant. His son and his son's son, and then it's all over, and I'll let other kings feed themselves on what he once had. Nebuchadnezzar. Pagan kings. Tried to do away with the worship of God, didn't he? Destroyed Jerusalem, didn't he? Who set him up? God did. What were the Israelites supposed to do? Submit or rebel? Submit. Submit. Were they to pray for him or against him? For him. For him. Isn't that amazing? There's a lot in that. Why did you disobey that king? When it required something of you that you could not do because God said you shouldn't, like bow down to my golden image, then God delivers. Until then, what do you do? You salute and click your heels and say, yes, sir. Right. Until there is something like bow down and worship this idol. You didn't go to Nebuchadnezzar and say, you know, I know you're the king of this empire, but I'd just like to suggest that maybe you can get a whole lot more of the people if you be a little gentler than you have been. Instead of always threatening them and pulling down their timbers and making their house a dunghill, you might be able to get farther with them if you speak more kindly to them. You know what he'd do to someone like that? After having laughed, after having recovered from laughter, they'd simply have a bag put over their head based on the testimony of Scripture, and they'd be carried out of his presence. He had a man to do that job, and guess who chose them? He did. He had counselors, all those kings. Did it read about Ahasuerus? Ahasuerus was a wise king. People look at those kings and say they were just spoiled little children who got into it by birth. I don't care if they got there by birth. If they were born to a king, they knew more than you did when you were 70, when they were seven. Right. By the very fact you were born to a king. Who caused them to be born to the king? These offices and these men are important for us to recognize. Have you ever thought about the amount of influence you had in the selection of your parents? You know, you ought not to have much more influence in that, in the selection of any other sphere of authority in your life. The fact that you do is abundant mercy, and I'm not saying it's wise mercy. I'm just saying it's abundant mercy if you don't like it that way. You know, you get to choose so many things in our nation that other nations have not been allowed to choose. You get to choose who you're married to, you get to choose where you work, and you can quit if you don't like it. That is not the way it is generally been. Right. You know, 10-year-old girls and 12-year-old girls, if there were fathers in a congregation that were in debt, they simply sold their daughters as bondmaids. And guess what those bondmaids went and did? They became great bondmaids. You know, there are, there are members of this congregation that had alcoholics for parents. There are members of this congregation that had cult members for parents. There are members of this congregation that had God-fearing, good parents. Who made the difference? God did. 
Did one deserve obedience and honor more than the other? No. What's the only line that's ever drawn? I don't care if they're believers or unbelievers. It's when they would ask you to do something flagrantly obvious against God. God made that choice. Some of you don't some of you hardly had parents. They disappeared. One of the one of the of your parents may have disappeared when you were but a young child. I know some of your stories. God, God ordained that. Amen. God ordained the office, and God ordained the circumstances you were born into. You couldn't have influenced it if you had to. And there's one thing, brother, that we all need to trust in right now with all of our hearts, that God Almighty does that which is right and perfect. Amen. And he had some purpose. And you may look back right now and resent, regret, hate, and be bitter toward parents. But I want to tell you, if you want to have a peaceful life, you're going to bury that stuff. That's right. You're going to bury that stuff and say, God, you must have wanted me to learn something from that. Amen. You didn't have a thing to do with it. And sometimes pastors are going to come your way and take advantage of you or be a blessing in your life, and it's still going to be the blessing of God. Amen. You might be married to a spouse. It might be a curse or a blessing. It's going to be God's coordination as long as you're doing your best. It could be our nation could be given a set of bad rulers that are going to be worse than the ones we have. It'll be the ordination of God. We're going to submit anyway until... They draw some line like a golden image that we've got to bow down to and worship. God ordains the office. God prepares the man. God gets the man in the office. You know what? It goes farther than that. God directs the man <coughs> in the office. Right. You say, but I've seen, I've seen men act wickedly. God's directing them. Remember, I've already gone to the extreme example. What's his name? Satan, the devil himself. Has he ever done anything that wasn't in the will of God and by God's ordination? No. Let me give you some Bible examples about stirring up man. I've got multiplied witnesses here also. We just read one, didn't we? Ezra 1.1. What did Cyrus say? What, what did we read about Cyrus in Ezra 1.1? That the Lord stirred up his heart. He, here's a pagan. What would make a pagan king want to build an impregnable city on Mount Zion? and build a temple there to worship their God. Because the Lord stirred up his heart to do it. Ezra 1.1 we, we know the verse in Proverbs 21.1 The heart of the king is in the Lord's hand as the rivers of water. He turneth it with us whoever he will. Right. Just remember, whatever that king's doing is the will of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. And the way they're acting is ordained of God to see how you're going to react to it. Because it might be for judgment and it might be for blessing. But how are you going to react? Think about your parents. Think about an evil parent that you may have had. The office, the man, and his spirit being stirred up even toward wickedness or toward righteousness. God ordained that as a trial for your faith and as a learning experience in your life. God Almighty ordained that, and they were still to be honored and reverenced. Right. As far as you could because of their office, like I just had to apologize for the devil himself earlier this evening. I would never blame my folly on God Almighty. But I'll tell you one thing. That's a great example for me to give some of you who have resented your parents because they weren't perfect parents. The devil himself is to be honored for his office. Right. 
And Michael the Archangel didn't bring a railing accusation against him. And I never want to hear railing accusations against parents in this congregation. God stirs up man. Look at, we're in Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah 51 and verse 11. Make bright the arrows. Gather the shields. The Lord hath raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes. For his device is against Babylon to destroy it. Because it is the vengeance of the Lord. The vengeance of his temple. Remember, Israel deserved being punished. So God brought Nebuchadnezzar to level their temple. And it lay level and dormant for 70 years. But then... God stirred up the kings of the Medes to come and punish Babylon for having destroyed the temple. And you say, well, I'd never be able to figure all that out. You're right. right. That's why God's God and God's in charge and we simply sit and submit. Amen. God's in charge. God takes care of all that. He sees the end from the beginning. He's working all those details out. You do not know why your father may have been an alcoholic. You do not know. A spouse could have been punished by that. He could have been punished by that. Something you do not know. Listen, we could sit here and speculate and theorize all evening and hypothecate on all the ways that God could have been accomplishing something. But I'll tell you one thing. He would only have picked the ones out of that list that made the wisest sense. Amen. God has a purpose in all those negative things that happen in authority. And they're not for us to bark against them. We we only have one responsibility to ever to ever balk authority, and that's when it is plain and obvious and clear cut that the person in authority is requiring something of us that God has forbidden. That's right. Or forbidding something that God has required. And only that. <coughs> and if it's a doubt, guess who gets the doubt? The one in authority. It's very, very simple. But I want to build a case, and I want to build the case, and I want to build the case for what God has taught us in his word. Look at God. Stirred up the kings of me. Babylon was in... Listen. What did Babylon say about itself? I am a queen. I shall sit forever. Who's going to ever take Babylon? Ever read about the city of Babylon? It was impregnable. Did God raise up the kings to take it? He stirred up their hearts. Did he give them the wisdom to do it? Did they do it easily? Did they... He opened the gates for them. So they marched right into that city on the dry river bread of the Euphrates River that flows right through the middle of that city. Unbelievable. The Persian engineers dammed up that river and diverted its course so that they walked through a dry riverbed in that city. The bronze gates were open. The Bible said, I will open the gates for Cyrus. And he walked right in while Belshazzar's in there drinking his wine of the goblets from Jerusalem. And a hand comes out of the wall and it says, Thy kingdom is not, thou, thou art weighed the balances and found wanting, and thy kingdom is taken from thee. Guess what was outside that room? <laughs> Guess what was outside that room? The Persian armies. And it says in that night, he was taken. God did all that. Amen. God did all that. God stirs up kings. Now those are kings stirred up for evil. The Medes against the Babylonians. <laughs> Look at Revelation 17, 17, about the kings of Europe. Revelation 17. Follow with me. God has ordained the five offices. God prepares men for the offices. God gets the men to the offices. 
God then stirs up the men that are in those offices, sometimes for good, sometimes for evil, depending usually on the people underneath them. Wicked people are going to get wicked rulers. Righteous people are going to get righteous rulers. In Revelation 17, 17, and don't, we're not going to get into this whole chapter, I'm just going to read a verse about the kings of Europe, the broken up fragments of the Roman Empire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Now God put in the hearts of the kings of Europe to submit to the Pope of Rome, and if you've ever read about it, it would take something in their hearts to make them want to come and kneel before the Pope of Rome and have him crown them with his feet. The kings of Europe have received crowns on their head by being held to the feet of popes. What would cause them to ever do that? When they could have crushed that little city with hardly a battle. The popes never had military power except the kings that submitted to them. Right. How, how, how did the Pope get all that power? Right here. He put in their hearts to fulfill his will. Listen, brethren, I believe in a sovereign God. Do you? Amen. Now that's for evil. Well, it's, it's in God's wise plan. But it was for the evil of God's saints, I'll tell you, because it was that military might of those ten nations that persecute the saints of the Most High God and chase them through Europe. Now let's look at some other examples. Joshua 11.20. Joshua 11.20. Oh, there's so many examples. Did God create the office of Pharaoh? Did God, did God oversee the formation of Pharaoh in the womb of his mother? Did God get him to the office? He didn't die in battle? No bubonic plague for Pharaoh? Once he was in office, why wouldn't he let the people of Israel go after, say, three plagues? God hardened his heart. God heart shut off understanding. God can give understanding. God can shut off understanding. God wanted to judge Egypt for the way they had treated his people. Why didn't he let them go after seven plagues? Wouldn't you have let them go after seven plagues? I, I hope I let them go after about one plague. I think after I saw that serpent jump out of Moses' rod and jump back into his hand and come around and said, Great idea. <laughs> Go worship. I mean, don't you hope he said why? Why didn't he? God told Moses in Exodus chapter 4, before he ever went into Egypt, I'm going to harden his heart to get me honor and glory upon him. Right. Why did he ride his chariot down that Red Sea like I've pointed out so many times? God had blinded him so that he could get a name over the entire Egyptian army. I'm making a point here, brethren. You may be under an office. With a man in that office prepared by God, that God gives to the office, that God blinds. It is not your job to give him light, nor is it your job to replace him. God will replace him when you're worthy of someone with more light. God will. Did God take care of the Jews that were under that evil pharaoh? Joshua 11. Here's a similar passage. Joshua 11 and verse 20. I've got so many witnesses on this, I could preach six weeks on the examples for these points I'm trying to make. This is the Bible. This is God controlling the affairs of men. Right. Joshua 11 and verse 20. 
For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts. These are the opponents of Joshua when he got into the land of Canaan. That they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly, and that they might have no favor, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. Can you imagine if Joshua had taken the Israelites into Canaan, and all the people opened up their city gates and said, Welcome to Canaan. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. We'll let you put your your flocks on the west side of the city, and we'll keep ours on the east side of the city. Now, wouldn't it have been hard to take your sword out and cut someone's head off who was acting like that? Can you follow for a second? Would that have been hard to do? It would have been hard to do. One nation tried it, and Joshua didn't kill them. Right. So what did God do for the rest of the nations? It was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, so that God could destroy them utterly. Notice how God is providentially stirring up the hearts of kings who've heard about the destruction of Egypt, destruction of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and other kings. Why would they want to go to battle with Israel? The Lord would tell them, you can do it. Arm the troops, call up the reserve. You'll be the one that'll do it. You'll be the one that'll rid Canaan of this pest, the Israelites. And guess what happened? He destroyed them utterly. God does that to men's hearts. Right. God does that to men's hearts. Look at Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel 14. Brethren, there are so many passages on this. I beg you to follow your lot in life. You are going to be placed under men by God's ordinance. First of all, because it's the position that God ordained, God prepared the men, God got the men there, and then God directs the men in that office. You say, but I ought to be a check and balance on that. God is the great check and balance. He gives what's best for you. Here's, here's an example of what can happen if you don't want to be faithful yourself. Ezekiel 14 and verse 9. Let's get, uh, don't read it. Let me tell you the context here. Here's a group of people that come to the prophet of God. They've got idols in their hearts. They've already set up in their hearts what they're going to believe and what they're going to do when they come to the prophet of God anyway for a show of religion. And when they come to the prophet of God, here's what God tells them. Verse 9. If the prophet be deceived, when he hath spoken a thing, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand upon him, and will destroy him from the midst of my people, Israel. A people who have set up an idol in their hearts. Oh, I'm going to worship God the way my grandparents did. I'm going to worship God according to this denomination. I'm not going to let this minister. And so forth. They set up an idol in their hearts. When they go to a prophet... God will deceive that prophet in order for judgment on those people. God ordains the office. God prepares the man. God gets the man the office. God can give the man wisdom in the office. God can stir up his heart for good things, like God stirred up the heart of Zerubbabel to want to build the temple in Jerusalem. Or God can deceive the heart of that man so that you're fed lies. Guess what it turns on? Your faithfulness. God's able to work all of that out in a congregation. Listen, God is infinitely wise. Amen. God, listen. God is so infinitely wise, three of you, let's say, 
but this congregation is unfaithful in your personal lives, and so God blinds me, turns me over to some level of sin or spiritual corruption to where I begin teaching lies, God could still have three in here that he would stir up their hearts to be able to see the truth so that they would withdraw and leave this congregation to be preserved and to find a man of God who would be faithful for them. And the rest of you would be stuck with a man preaching lies. And God can do that, brethren, as easily as you tie your shoes. Right. And do it all. He is the check and balance. Amen. He is the check and balance. I'm dealing with the point, the source of authority. Where does authority come from? God. God ordains the office. God prepares the man. God gets man in the office at the right time. And then God directs the man here wisely or foolishly, with ambition or without it, depending on what his purpose is in the affairs of those under that man. And it's not, it is not the right, nor is it the duty, of those under the man to try to overthrow the man. God is using the man. There are scriptural guidelines for overthrowing a king or rejecting a king, let's say rejecting a king, withdrawing from a pastor, disobeying parents, but they're very, very clear-cut in the Word of God, and you better have a flagrant offense in order to even consider such a thing. Another source of authority is those under the position of authority have to submit. You know, God's created this authority thing. Here's where the, practic the, the practical value of this teaching comes in. There is no authority without voluntary submission. You know what? What's the emphasis in the Word of God when it comes to duties? Are there more verses in the Bible to kings, fathers, husbands, pastors, and masters about how to brutalize their servants and subjects into obedience? Or are there more verses on those under authority to submit? What's the emphasis? Those under authority to submit. Because guess what? There is no king unless the people submit. Ray of old thought differently, didn't he? Mm -hmm. A king can only control his people with their voluntary submission. Ray of old thought that he could dictate the terms of the people and not even give any regard to them until he lost ten tribes because he did not win the voluntary submission of those people. That's why the emphasis in the Word of God is let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. There are very many verses that say higher powers crush the souls that are subject to you. Because authority is built, first of all, by God in all the ways I describe. Then His Word says, submit, submit, be in subjection to that position of authority. A king can only control his people with voluntary submission. Now, a foolish man will say, but the king's got the army. A wise man will say, the army is made up of the people. Right. And if you don't have the people submitting to you, there isn't an army. Guess what we usually call that? A coup d'etat, or a military coup, where the army is the people, and the people don't want the king, so the army overthrows the king, and a general, which is a representative of the people, takes over the nation. Even a king's authority is by the voluntary submission of the people. Look at 2 Samuel 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Now God's ordained the office, God's prepared the man, 
God gets the man in the office, and God directs the man while he's in the office by giving him wisdom, withholding wisdom, stirring his heart up, chilling his heart out, blinding him, and so forth. He's a great check and balance. God is. Now we've got that set up in this world. What What is everybody's duty toward those offices of authority? They're just men. <coughs> we read in... What chapter was it that we read that God anointed David king of Israel? Anybody? 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. We're all the way to 2 Samuel 5. Let's read verse 1. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron, and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that led us out and brought us in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king, to Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Do you see that? 1 Samuel 16, God made him king. God ordained the office of king. God prepared the boy. God got him in the office. God stirred up his heart to be willing to do this, and God made the people willing to submit to him. What if the people had said, we don't want anything to do with David? David wouldn't have been king. God would have had to destroy them. Some God could have made him king some other way. But the people voluntarily submit and they make him king by submitting. There is a combination. David, one man, I don't care if he did have his 37 chosen men, he wasn't going to be able to force the entire nation to submit to him. Right. They had the ordinance of God that every soul be subject to the higher powers they obeyed They made David king. God chose David. They submitted to David. They didn't pick David. They already knew that God picked him. Isn't that what they said? The Lord chose thee to be a captain over us. What? Okay. Now, this is, this is political science 101. The moment they make a lead, the moment they make a lead, then what is David's responsibility? Is it David's responsibility every year to come back and ask them to make him king? Or does David take the authority of a king that is inherent in that office and by proper affection toward his people and proper force and a proper combination of those two things earn or enforce both their submission? Do you follow? Mm -hmm. God sets up the man in the office. God brings the man in the office to the people. The people voluntarily submit one time to make him king, and then it is his job to maintain law and order. What if 10,000 of those people decided we don't want David to be king? What would David have done to them? Gone and made a league with them? Or wiped them out? That's his job. That's a king against whom there is no rising up. But how does a king against whom there is no rising up get his authority? By the voluntary submission of the people. But once they give it, it is his job to keep it. Once they give it, they cannot take it back. If there's a wise man or woman here, they're going to be listening to me right now in no uncertain terms. I mean, this is nuts and bolts of recognizing authority and how to deal with it. Once you grant authority and submit to it, you don't take it back. A year later, if the people said, we don't like this form of government, like our nation once said to the King of England, the King of England has an obligation to do what? To try to enforce obedience. And so would David have. 
Same way with the wife, isn't it? Does a, does a man have the power to force a what to force a woman to obey him before he's married? Well, he could physically force her, maybe, but that really wouldn't have a submissive companion like God intended. So what happens? Isn't there voluntary submission? What is a marriage? The woman voluntarily submits to the man. What does she do when she does that? And Gloria, this is the big thing that she'll be doing in two weeks and five days. That moment when you submit yourself to Matthew is a permanent deal that you cannot take back. It is a big deal, brethren. There is no authority until the woman submits. Show me the man that can uh, create that authority by himself. The woman has to create it by voluntary submission. But the moment she creates it by voluntary submission, she cannot take it back. And it is his job from that point on, Matthew, with a, with a combination of affection and a combination of rule to keep her submissive. And that's the wisdom that's going to be required of you because you're going to be a leader now. She's going to create it by submitting to you. Voluntary submission, she's going to make you king over her life. But then you're going to have to keep her that way, and sometimes she's going to want to fight you. Sometime the 10,000 men out in some tribe way out there are going to say, we don't want you to be king anymore. It's going to be some little part of her soul, and you're going to have to win her back. Every husband in here does it. If he doesn't do it, he's not a husband like God would have him be. Right. A church is set up the same way. God brings along a man like Titus on the island of Crete. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul left Titus in Crete to set in order the things that are wanting in a number of cities. God put Titus over those people. Those people were to submit to Titus. And once they submitted, they couldn't take it back because he was in authority over them. That's how it works. All authority relationship exists that way. It's a combination of voluntary submission and wise leadership that maintains that submission. Parents know that. Now, you don't have to worry about it when you've got a three-year-old James. You take him by the nape of the neck, pull out the rod, and you keep him in submission. But when he gets older, and he's looking down at his father, then you have to use a combination of wisdom and affection and a bigger rod to get the job done. You, and you do. How does that relationship get started? That is entirely the act of God. You know, that's the first one we all deal with. It's an act of God that you don't have the slightest degree of influence in. You're simply born to your parents, and you are to submit to them till the day you die, as far as God's authority through parents operates in your life. The Bible says that pastors are to take the oversight of flocks, 1 Peter 5, 2. But then it says in Hebrews 13, 17, obey them and have the rule over you and submit yourself. It's a combination. But once it's established, the pastor is responsible to rule the congregation by a combination of affection, mercy, patience, long-suffering, and ruling to keep his congregation in submission under him. Every master has to do it the same way. How's the employment relationship established? You sign the line. You take the offer of employment. The minute you do that, you can't withdraw it without the terms of withdrawal, which are allowed in our nation, which didn't exist in the past. Though authority assumes voluntary submission of those under it, that doesn't mean any, in any sense whatsoever that authority is a voluntary. That authority is an option. It's a commandment. It's an ordinance of God. Right. It is just set up by our submission. And it's kept by the power of the man in the office. 
Though you may have the physical or the mental ability to resist your husband, or resist your parents, or resist your pastor, it doesn't give you the right to do it. It's not an option for you. You're to submit. Because God's ordained that authority relationship. Right. It is the proper and the repeated teaching of what I am telling you right now that is the basis for a happy and secure society. That's right. When you read the Bible, I can say some words right now and tell you you ought to be able to do that with your family and you'd be mortified. Let me just say a couple and watch the rise I get. Some of you have heard them before, so it's not going to shock you very much. But marriages ought to be arranged by parents. Marriages ought to be arranged by parents. You people are able to shake your head this way because you've had me around for a while. By the grace of God, I've taught that. You know what? When you first hear that, when I sit down and I think about it, and I go through our congregation, I think about it, and I think about the marriages we've got that weren't even arranged, and, and uh, they're squeaking by, you say, I, uh, I don't know if that can work in the 20th century. You know why it can't work in the 20th century? Because what I'm teaching you right now is not taught as a regular diet. That's right. Under the Old Testament, arranged marriages worked very, very smoothly. You know why? Because they understood authority. And when Dad said, there's your husband, go submit to him. There's your husband. Say, there's, there's your wife. I give her up. That woman knew to submit. Even if she didn't like him. Even if he was shorter. Dumber. Wasn't as rich as her father. Didn't matter. She submitted because they understood the principles of authority. Arranged marriages work where children are properly trained. Right. We read those things in the Word of God, and we said it could never work in our society. What are our what's, what are our marriages based on? Would someone tell me? I know you're going to give me that precious word. It's four letters. Love. Our marriages are based on love. And you know how far love gets you in marriage? I haven't used the word yet, have I? Because love doesn't build authority. Love doesn't build submission. You know what builds submission? Fear, another four-letter word. Fear! Ingrained into children from their early days that a daughter is to fear her father and fear a husband, and she watches her mother in fear of her, of her father. And I don't mean some fear where she's cowering in a closet afraid of getting hit by a hammer. I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm talking about a reverential respect and awe of her father. She sees that all of her life. She Listen, God sends her in this world a blank slate. And that slate is filled with the wise things of God's word. She can easily submit to a man that's got bad breath, no teeth, and a pot belly, and isn't as rich as her father. Because guess what? Her dad says you're going to submit to him because he's your father. I mean, he's your husband, excuse me. It's easy to do. We, we, we talk about that and it can't work because our children aren't trained. Our nation isn't trained. How about voluntary and involuntary servitude? You can read in the Bible where if a man was in debt, he sold his daughter to be bondmaid. Can you imagine taking your 12-year-old daughter, your 10-year-old daughter, your 8-year-old daughter, and selling her off to be a bondmaid to another man that as soon as she reached sexual maturity, that man would use her as a wife? And you know what you do it for to pay off your credit card? You say, that's a perverse society that does that. That's a, that's a society where God was in control that did that. Right. Because he allowed childbirth to be a means of debt. You say, how could a girl go and do that? Wouldn't she run away? Not where you were trained authority properly. 
Did you ever, ever read the Old Testament and wonder how women got along in a polygamous marriage? I'll tell you how women got along in a polygamous marriage. They all feared their one husband. Right. And I'm not saying polygamy is God's ideal, nor is it his standard, but it can work. And I did not say because it can work, it's God's <coughs> ideal or it's God's standard. It's contrary to God's creation ordinance. However, it can work when people are taught and trained properly. Dangerous military campaigns are something we still have, don't we? What makes a 19-year-old boy in the prime of his life willing to charge a machine gun nest with a hand grenade to try to drop it in there before they nail him on his way to it? What causes him to do that? Because in the military, you've got to have some authority and submission. And if the sergeant or the colonel or whoever's in charge says, take out that machine gun nest, they are trained to go do it without thinking. And to God, I wish our children and our wives were trained the same way. That when a husband or a father speaks, they go and do it without thinking. You say, but what if that father or husband, and see, that's always the root beef coming up in everyone. What if, what if, what if, what if, that father or that husband tells them to do something they shouldn't do. Well, listen, if that person's got the brain god Dima Goose and has read the Bible twice in the last year, they should be able to recognize something that's contrary to God's law. Right. And if it's not that plain, it's not worth fighting authority over. Amen. Because you're fighting the ordinance of God. Right. <coughs> how many, how many uh, privates do you think say, but uh, Sergeant... Wouldn't it be a better idea if we called it? Come on. But see, everybody wants to do that. You know, wives want to tell their husbands how they can be better husbands. Teenagers want to tell their parents how they can be better parents. Church members are all the time wanting to tell their pastor how he can be a better pastor. Citizens are telling their king how he can be a better king. Employees, we want to have a meeting where we can air our grievances. Don't we have a right to air our grievances? You know, if there's ever a meeting to air grievances, guess who should call it? The master. Guess how often that'll be? Every time Hades freezes over. <laughs> I use Hades because there is no such place. Authority. Submission. If these things were taught, polygamous marriages, involuntary servitude, arranged marriages, absolute despot as a form of government. Despot isn't a bad word. It just means all the authorities in one man can work and work well. It doesn't in our nation because no one's taught these things. I trust that as we consider these things and think about the Word of God and think about the five spheres of authority and think about our relationship in them and think about how God not only created the office, but prepared the man and got the man in the office and directs the man in the office, if you would all fall back on your parents that God gave you, you had no influence in it whatsoever. God, listen, did you, did you think the idea of parents, the, the office of parents, was that a good idea before you came in this world? Did you think the office was a good idea? Did you like the way God had prepared them before you came in? Did you like the ones God got there before you came in? Did you like the way they treated you when you came in? God did all that for you. You know what the only check and balance is? 
a merciful and a faithful creator that sits in heaven and does everything right. Amen. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He has done right. right. And I can stop right now and I can go over this congregation. I can look in your eyes and I know there's hurt and there's, there's memories and there's resentment and there is pain in some of your lives because of the choice God made for you. But I want to tell you something. God was working his perfect will in your life. Amen. In the life of your parents. For some end that you may not be able to see, but all I can I can tell you this: put your trust in the Lord, and you can dwell in peace. Amen. And bitterness and resentment towards your parents has got to be buried and put away. Right. God ordained that, and we, because once it starts with parents, it flows to everyone else. Mm -hmm. You will think it's your. Well, I'm not going to let my pastor do to me what my parents did to me, and so you're out to be the pastor's watchdog. Well, I'm not going to let my boss take advantage of me like he took advantage of my mother. And so you become your master's watchdog. That isn't what God's called us to. That's right. God's called us to faithful submission to authority and to trust him and to be faithful. And as we're faithful, God will bless us with merciful masters, pastors, husbands, fathers, and kings. And may God bless our nation with faithful men in all those offices as we're faithful to him and to his ordinance of authority. Amen. Let's stand together. You have prepared men for those offices. You have placed those men in those offices and you direct those men for the chastening and for the blessing of your people. Heavenly Father, for every heart in here that has held bitterness, resentment, hatred or anger for parents, for pastors, for spouses, for governments, for masters, forgive us and cleanse us from such unrighteousness and wickedness. Let us not, O Lord, dare to fight against the ordinance of God and receive damnation upon ourselves. Heavenly Father, may the things that have been said lie in the memories of these people. May they love them and rejoice in them and receive them with a ready mind. May they, O Lord, look for opportunities in this coming week to honor Thee in the authority relationships in which they must operate. We thank You for Your great check and balance. And, O Lord, we look around, we look at our marriages, we look at our church, we look at our employment situations, we look at our nation. God, we are not worth it of the favor that you have shown us. We have the best combination of masters and rulers that any people have ever enjoyed. And we thank thee for them. We pray that you will honor them and protect them and keep them and guide them and continue to bless them and that we might enjoy your blessing in our lives. Heavenly Father, let us never forget the great seed of the woman. May all the women in this congregation rejoice in their Savior, Jesus Christ, who delivered them, even by means of the very thing God cursed in the Garden of Eden. And may we all realize that Jesus, who is made of a woman, has redeemed us unto thee and made us heirs of thee through Christ. And we look forward to that day when we shall be restored to thy presence, to be there forevermore with thee in that splendid bliss that Adam lost by his transgression. We thank you for salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray that you would convict us, we would live lives of holiness, 
will be worthy of that great name that we bear. For we ask it in his blessed name and for his sake and his honor and his glory. Amen. Amen.